Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Rita Troyer. Rita is a digital designer at Airbnb and civically engaged volunteer, born and raised in the lush state of Indiana. Rita's design approach takes projects from strategy and conceptualization, information architecture and wireframing, to high-fidelity prototypes and user-tested interfaces. Beyond digital design, Rita specializes in the development of branding and identity systems. Before moving to San Francisco to join the Airbnb team, Rita spent three and a half years designing for the IMA Lab a research arm dedicated to the creation and dissemination of technology for the cultural sector at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. In the IMA lab, Rita designed web, mobile, and digital experiences for the IMA and external clients like the Art Institute of Chicago and Smithsonian institutions. Rita is the founder of Creative Mornings Indianapolis, a breakfast lecture series in 100 plus cities around the world. In her free time, Rita enjoys traveling, expanding her music collection, cooking, and being outside. Rita studied telecommunications at Indiana University, where she specialized in design and production and marketing and advertising. Welcome, Rita. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you today. Um, so the first question I wanted, I wanted to ask you is, in the paper that you co-authored, Mo Pixels, Mo Problems, moving towards a resolution independent web you made the statement in order to accommodate a synchronous user experience in a in a device shifting world we as designers must prepare our designs in a fluid and focused manner which is something i totally agree with and struggle to bring to my own classroom however throughout the paper you discuss pixel density css media queries javascript SVGs and so on. So my question to you is how much of what you described in the paper is the designer's responsibility and how much is the responsibility of the front end and back end developers? Ooh, this is a great question. Um, I'll begin by saying I, I co-authored this with a front end developer. So a lot of the more technical implementation thought was um, kind of described by him. Uh, But on all of our projects, when we worked together, um, it was certainly something that I was thinking through. So just trying, when I'm thinking about designing an interface, um, trying to think about, you know, can this page include um, an icon font or SVGs to to reduce load time and to ensure that uh, the graphics will look great on high pixel density displays. And just always trying to think about, okay, I'm going to design this interface, but when it's starting to go into production and I'm going to work with a front-end developer, how can I ensure that all the assets are created in a way that is um, adhering to web best practices? So it's really a collaboration, I would say. Okay, Okay, so when I'm teaching in the classroom, you know, how... The, I, this is where I'm struggling with the, with this idea um, of performance, and and I believe solely 100 percent like the designer should be focused on um, 
performance and designing for performance. But I'm I'm kind of curious where the line comes where I you know is a I'm teaching my students to design something and should they be burdened with saying, you know, should this be an SVG, should this be a a JPEG? Or is that somebody going to, you know, should they be burdened with the design? And then somebody, you know, like the developer says, hey, wait a minute, you know, the best way to implement this would be an SVG or or vice versa. I mean, does does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I would say that, um, you know, in my earlier web design days, I would initially just send over my file, hand it off to a front end developer and say, here, let's make this live. But oftentimes you would come back to me and explain like, hey, Rita, if we did it this way, it would work better. And so I think part of that, just working so closely with a front-end developer really shifted my understanding of Mm -hmm. how best to implement things and to ensure best practices. And that thereby changed my practices and workflow to ensure that I was thinking about those things while designing. Um, And you said something in there that that I can't think of what you were saying, so... Oh, I'll, that, I digress. Yeah, no, that answered that. That generally answered the question. Um, <clears throat> so, I guess the uh, so the the follow up to that would be, what should we then be discussing in the classroom then when it comes uh, to this idea of 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 the, the performance and um, making the right design choices? So. For example, I mean, how I've been, a pr- I, I keep changing each semester. Last semester, I taught them performance and I'm like, we're doing a performance budget and they had to get a website, you know, to perform within that budget. But that was so confusing for them, <laughs> you know, yeah. being their first experience. I, I So this semester I'm trying like, you know, I'm, I'm introducing like, we're going to be doing some images. There's about 50 different ways that we could be doing images and it's going to be the job of you and the developer to determine what's the best solution. And I'm just trying to make them aware that there's going to be a solution there that, you know, that they have to be a part of making. Yeah. I think that that's a great approach. I think that part of it is, um, I mean, really the like in suggestion in this Mo pixels, Mo problems paper Mm -hmm. was about just always keeping your audience at the forefront So, uh, for example, in my job currently, uh, we have a team dedicated to creating web graphics, and oftentimes that includes things like banner ads. And if the banner ads are being served on a platform that can easily accept assets up to 150 kilobytes, my suggestion would always be to export that at two times for a retina or high-pixel density display and serve that higher graphic. Now say the restrictions of the network in which we're implementing is like 25 kilobytes, then you're definitely going to do at one time and uh, go in for save and web devices and like save for web and devices and likely even have to make adjustments in terms of like saving for high quality or medium. So I do always think it's really important to think you want things to look beautiful and I think that's really what all of us designers are striving for. But if no one can see it, it's not going to look beautiful. So just trying to always keep that balance in mind of like performance and audience and keeping things beautiful while not sacrificing the user experience. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to approach it with just the idea of audience in mind. Because you can, we can, in the classroom, I can easily say, this is the audience. And then just throw out that, okay, but this, you know, but does it, does this specific um, design serve this audience? I think it's an easy way for them to see that, okay, this, the design changes, the design changes upon the audience. Absolutely. Um, so can you elaborate on another statement you made within the paper? Yeah. Um, design, and this is more for the audience, um, but and, and not for me, but um, you made the statement like design in a fluid and, and focused manner. Can you describe what you mean by fluid? Yeah, um, I would just say that, you know, we're living in this world in which I might be viewing a website on my iPhone or my iPad or on a huge display in my workplace or possibly on my 13-inch MacBook. And I think it's just thinking about whatever we're designing, we're ensuring that we're thinking about uh, cross-device and cross-browser compatibility and um, trying to make the design and user experience as fluid across those platforms as possible. Um, so just ensuring like, hey, this is going to look amazing on my external uh, monitor, but it's also going to look amazing on my phone. And this is how it can fall back across things if necessary. And same goes for uh, browsers. Yeah. Um, so is there a tremendous difference when you go from desktop to tablet to mobile to large screen? Does the design change a lot? Um, I think it does. And uh, one of my it's hard in practice on a daily basis to really shift your thinking. But I mean, and it sounds trendy in the web world, but mobile first. I think having mm -hmm. a mobile first approach is you are just boiling down the design to the very basics, which I, for me, it makes it a lot easier to then think about, okay, and on desktop, we can add this or have the functionality look like this. Or on mobile, it's just like, I'm really going to boil this down to a potentially single column and um, make the user experience as fluid as possible. And I think oftentimes it's on desktop where you're adding like, this is the hover state and, you know, these are the more fancy bells and whistles where on mobile, you're really just dealing with touch instances, a really, you know, mm -hmm. narrow screen size and you kind of have to boil things back to the basics. So I do think the approach is oftentimes different, but I do think it's just important to think, you know, about the device and where people are when they're viewing those things. Like on mobile, people are generally on the go, so they probably don't want the bells and whistles of a beautiful CSS animation that they might want on desktop. Yeah. And I, what drove it, I mean, I always, I do actually, you know, start with the mobile first, start um, when I'm teaching my students. Um, but it, it wasn't until recently that I was showing them um, how to use the uh, picture element in, you know, HTML picture elements. So like, you know, this art direction, this idea of cropping. And yeah. somebody had pulled out their, one student had that 17 inch MacBook Pro that they don't make anymore. And that device blew out the entire layout. 
it was just it didn't the cropping of the images the layout didn't work in that one device where it was work you know it was it looked similar in everybody's 13 inch and 15 inch laptops but that 17 inch one just it just broke and yeah. it was it's really i mean it's it wasn't like i don't think students realize that because you can sit there and talk about it in theory but until they see it break <laughs> it's really hard um so with that idea do you have a device lab at any of the places where you work to be able to like experiment with these different looks yeah. and feels yeah um I, basically as soon as i started at my new job at airbnb they got me uh, an iPad to test, but I'll be honest, most of my work has been in the iOS realm. So mm -hmm. I really haven't done much with Android. Uh, but at my old job, we did have a series, you know, we, uh, an array of Android devices as well. And, um, windows and like Samsung things that I don't even know what all they are, but yeah, we really tried to ensure that, uh, the accessibility of the projects that we were making overall could be viewed by, um, really we would look at analytics to begin and think about who, who is the audience again, audience first, and how can we develop this to ensure that the people in our audience are able to view this and coming from an art museum background, the majority of our users were, uh, Apple users. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing that's tough to replicate in the, in the classroom too is analytics because yeah we would have to i don't know i guess maybe if we would if i teach at umbc maybe if i got access to our analytics you know some pages to show them examples of the analytics that come hit our site um they would help drive that kind of stuff home absolutely um so changing up a, a couple of questions so whether it's the indianapolis museum of arts website or the Art Institute of Chicago's Launchpad app, you've worked on some really in-depth, wide-ranging projects. Um, it seems to me that uh, assigning my students the task of designing a site or an app such as these doesn't really replicate the complexity of the problem the designers face when creating these experiences, nor does it replicate the team approach necessary to create these products. So what should design educators be doing to help be better prepare students to work on such a large scale project like those? Ooh, that's a great question. I wish that I had had more of these types of projects in my education. So I think it would only benefit to, um, I think that maybe something that would be interesting is like a case study. Mm -hmm. So um, when I was in school, I went to Indiana University and I was a telecommunications student. And um, I helped work on just a few small sections of their website and kind of rethinking the way that the information on the page was laid out. And I do think that even something as minimal as here are our main users and this is the device or browser that they use um, here is what exists today and we are looking to solve X problem. And I think a lot of it is really teaching a student about systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And, um, to me, that is the main thing that helps me in my design approach on all of these sorts of projects is just learning how I can take large sets of data or information and represent them in a meaningful way 
And, um, you know, I would say both with my web projects at the IMA as well as the app that you mentioned for the Art Institute of Chicago, it was thinking about, okay, the IMA, this is a visitor that's coming trying to get information or it could be a researcher or a scholar Mm -hmm. and trying to come up with user personas and thinking about that web experience. So again, audience. And then um, for the Art Institute of Chicago, that was someone who was at the museum who is walking around in a gallery space and they're seeing an iPad mounted on a bench or something like that. And so how does that experience differ when they're in the space and looking around versus like visiting a website in advance of a visit? Or maybe it's a scholar who never is intending to visit the museum at all. Um, And I would say in both of those cases, it's really just taking this is the problem. You know, we, we want to share this information. And in both cases, it might be a different sort of environment, but how can we make this meaningful? Um, and so I think case studies are really, really helpful in just kind of teaching your brain how to think through, like, this is the scenario, this is the problem, and this is the design approach that would get me to an end result that is meaningful for that audience. All right. So I, so that makes complete sense. So we start off, I'm just throwing us how I would do this in a classroom. So I'd start off and I would have them do a, um, just like a case study of an existing project and so get as much details as they can um and and see how that worked then when it comes time to assign that that's where it it gets tricky do so do you i mean do you start by it's like here's the problem um and that problem is we're trying to solve x what are the ways that we solve that that then yeah. we go into now that we know what we're going to solve X, then do we go to, I would say, content and information architecture where they start. Then you start going to like, you know, UI interfaces. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's how I think I think, you know, you can totally make a beautiful user interface separate of knowing what the information and content is certainly, but I think in the real world or so far in my job experience, it's been very centered around, these are our business objectives. This is who our audience is. And this is what we're trying to do by redesigning or creating this thing out of nowhere. And how can we present this in a meaningful way? Um, And I think oftentimes knowing, you know, it'll, it'll be, served mainly on an iPad or mainly on a mobile device. Like that's a great jumping off point for even having an understanding. Um, let's see. I don't know if I'm no, no, answering you your question thoroughly yeah, enough, good. but uh, yeah, I think, I think oftentimes it's like, what is the business business objective? Because the business objective will then drive, you know, this information should be at the top of the page. And this is something that's a little less important. It still is of a priority but it should appear further down. And this is how it relates to the navigation and where we're looking to, uh, or how we're looking to segment our content. Um, can I want to ask a follow-up question that you said a little bit earlier, you said, do, you know, learn systems analysis. Can oh, yeah, you yeah, explain yeah. that to, to me, to everybody? Yeah. Sure. Um, okay. Well, I'm just making no, no, this fine. up cause I'm really not sure, but, 
Um, so I would say to me, systems thinking is just thinking about kind of like what I said earlier, there's like a large amount of information. So I know that there's going to be videos, there's going to be multimedia content, there's going to be um, general, like, say it's label text, and there's going to be, um, we, we're also interested in ensuring that people can find their way around the site. So if you think about those things, then then as a designer, I might start thinking, okay, well, there definitely needs to be navigation. Maybe it's interested if the maybe it's interesting if there's related content. Um, you know, is there a way that we can show different angles of an image, or um, a way that we can show videos and images next to each other to create like a full holistic view of something? Um, and then it's like, is is the call to action or whatever the main point of the page, if that's the most important thing, you know, maybe that's get, that gets moved up higher. And I think just once you start understanding what the content is and then you can kind of decide and start thinking about the order of importance, I think it just helps give meaningful order. And I would consider that systems okay. thinking. It's just trying to flow things into a space. Okay. So I'm going to ask um, another question then. And I... Th- what you just described to me um, sounds kind of like, oh, here, I'll just, it, it's the, um, in your bio, you talk about information architecture and wireframing. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, that sounds like what you just kind of described to an extent. Um, so basically, until recently, I was approaching wireframing much the same way I would have students approach thumbnailing a logo or a magazine spread. And it was all about, you know, making, you know, showing what it would look like. And, and it wasn't until recently that I realized that wireframing is, has really not, it's not about what the site's going to look like. It's about the relationships in the, in, in the content. Um, and it, and it just realized like, it's really hard. It, it, it's no, I shouldn't say that. It's a lot easier if I, if students do a proper thing, wireframe it's a lot easier for them to then design the ui elements within the site if they have a proper wireframe if they know the proper system that everything's kind of flowing through and if they know the proper relationships Mm -hmm. of content i mean does any of this make sense to you what i just said (laughs) i think it's all completely on point yeah i mean basically i i you i would say that i use systems thinking as an overall analysis of information and then i use information architecture and wireframing to show that or to display that in a meaningful way so when i say information architecture it could be as basic as like these are the five navigation items and on a landing page it'll be the, this that will take you down into sub navigation, which are these items. And it's really just giving categories to things. And then I would say a wireframe is giving that category maybe a little bit of a visual look, but all it really is is elements on a page. So I think you're just looking back at that maybe that list that you've made and ensuring that if you've shown navigation as five navigation items, that then you have five little tabs across the top of your wireframe. And I think it's important to, I think it's this whole like strong ideas loosely Mm -hmm. held, especially during that phase. You want to ensure that you're just getting ideas down on the paper. And I think oftentimes with stakeholders or 
you know, maybe it's your professor. You just don't want to get too tied to like, this is exactly how the end visual mock-up might look. It's really just about like, this is all of the information. And this is in, in the way that it might appear on a page. But, you know, the navigation might in a wireframe appear at the top of the page and then in the full fleshed out high fidelity uh, design, it might end up being on the right hand side or something. That's just a basic example, but I just think it's important. You're just trying to get out ideas. Yeah. Thanks. For, and, and I'm glad you noticed that the students, once I realize that the thumbnail and the wireframe are two different things, I was, I started, I was able to better articulate to the students that you are not visually designing anything right now with this wireframe you are organizing the information that is provided but they still have a real tough time not looking at that as the visual outcome (laughs) yeah i think i think that's hard for students early web designers stakeholders alike but i think the beauty of a wireframe is that it allows you to kind of have the conversations about basic content needs and, you know, have a discussion about those. I think of it as like an Ikea, the the piece of paper that you get in an Ikea mm-hmm. box and it comes with all of your equipment, but the wireframe is that little white piece of paper that has like a little diagram of how it's all going to work. And I think it's important during that phase is kind of when you gain an understanding of how this is all going to function and how you can work with your team and your colleagues to ensure that it does. And then that comes the visual design where it's like, all right, we're all on the same page here. And now my visual design doesn't have to be as painful. (laughs) It can really be about making something beautiful. And, you know, (laughs) this is where the trick comes in for design educators is especially when they're going to design school um we're tasked with teaching them you know visually how to design something but with the web with apps with these kind of things you you need to have you can't just go in and just start designing ui elements um, because you need so you need to know so much about that UI element for it to be effective. And we could spend an you know, we could spend an entire four years worth of classes just teaching about information architecture and, and, and wireframing. That's I mean, those are separate jobs. It is well again, is that a fair assessment on my part? Because I'm just like one person. This is just my observations. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that it is. I think uh, this this skill set that I have currently, I mean, I think that my education certainly laid the groundwork for problem yeah. solving and approaching projects. But I think of, I graduated five years ago and my first summer internship after graduate, or my uh, internship that I had right after graduating, um, my intern supervisor had an iPad and iPads were new yeah. at that point. And within, you know, two years later, I was designing iPad apps. And I just think that in this realm, working on digital projects, things are moving so quickly that no matter what you learn in your education, I do think that your like internships and your hands-on, hands-on experiences and those case study opportunities are what really allow you to like 
get and fully grasp what your professor has been telling you the whole time. You know, I think a lot of this is something that is once you're in action, it's like, wow, I finally, this all clicks. Okay. That, you know, it, that makes some, uh, makes sense. It's also a tremendous leap of faith <laughs> on, on the student's part that, <laughs> you know, what we're, you know, we're teaching is going to translate. Cause I, cause I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, I fall in the camp that they need to learn the information architecture. They need to learn, they learn, need to learn some HTML and CSS. They need to be cognizant of all these ancillary skills that either they're going to be asked to do, or they're going to be asked to work with somebody who's doing it. But we can't, I can't overlook the fact that they need to be sitting down and they need to be, you know, just cranking out a ton of UI elements. So they, you know, build their visual, um, skill sets too. Yeah. And I think, I think learning the software and building your, uh, UI skill set is equally, if not more important, because at the end of the day, you still have to give, give all of these ideas, some kind of look Mm -hmm. in the world. And I think it's important to, I don't know. I mean, we live in this world full of like the Pinterest yeah. and the dribble, et cetera. And I think it's really easy to j- just at the beginning of every project go onto a site mm-hmm. like that. And I actually try really hard to kind of block that stuff out and just think, you know, what would this, like, what is the client? What is the project? Do they, ha- do they exude some kind of energy and how can I reflect that in this digital space, you know? Um, and I think a lot of it is like working with an oftentimes you're working within an existing look and feel with a brand or, you know, with a campaign or whatever it might be. Um, and so also giving a nod to that without being too confined by that as well. You know, that's actually a perfect, uh, lead in to my next question. And that is, that's in regards to your job at Airbnb. Um, since Airbnb already has an existing product that they aren't creating from scratch, how does the design process differ, you know, from working on projects where, you know, like the IMA website or the AICA app, AIC app, where you started from scratch? Yeah, that is a great question. So I should preface, I am actually, I work as a digital designer on the brand okay. team. So I am uh, working more under kind of the marketing realm, but I can speak mm-hmm. to both. So um, we also have designers, they're experienced designers, and they work on the product, which is the platform for booking and um, listing your home and signing up as a guest and um, searching and booking your travel, et cetera. Um, and so I would say if, if you are, I'll start with product design. I would say that working as a product experience designer, you are always working within an existing framework. So I think that is honestly where the your UI skills are incredibly important, but that systems thinking is incredibly important because really you're trying to think, how does the user get from A to B in the most simple, elegant way that is working within the existing design language of this platform? Um, and when I say design mm-hmm. language, I just mean, you know, it's the existing look and feel and you really aren't deviating from that um so that's kind of my understanding of experience design and um 
on the product. And then for someone like me working on that with branding and marketing type projects, I am, I too am working within an existing brand, but, um, my work is much more campaign centric. So since I've started, I just worked on a website for our partnership with the New York marathon. And so I, that specific campaign had its own look and feel and I needed to implement Mm -hmm. that on the page and ensure that it was matching our existing branding. And then also ensuring that all of the content that we were creating surrounding the campaign and all of the social media posting and all the events and all of that sort of stuff had a place to live online. Um, Did you start at Airbnb before or after their most recent rebrand? I started after okay. the rebrand, but no. Yeah. The, the reason I, yeah, no. The fun. reason I ask is I think students, um, right now, ex- I don't know what I don't know what their expectations are, but I think they're thinking that they're going to be going into Airbnb or somebody out, and I'm going to redesign the brand. I'm going to be, you know, it's like this pie in the sky, and and, and that's just not the reality. The reality is, you know, a strong existing brand's not going to change. <laughs> I mean, right. so you have to be right. the steward of it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we talk about that often that under our brand department, we are stewards of the brand. And it's like, you know, our CEO had a baby and we're all babysitting it. And you need to like ensure that you're uh, encouraging brand consistency and uh, just doing everything you can to not weaken the brand. Yeah. And, you know, I just from a, a pedagogy you know, how we operate in the classroom perspective. I've never taught, I've taught branding before. I've taught like, but I've always started from the, let's start at the beginning. We're going to create it, but I've never said, okay, here's the existing branding. And this is now go execute this campaign. And I I just, it's just, but that's closer to real, the reality of how people are going to be working, how students are going to be working. I never thought about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let me think. There's a couple other questions. Oh, I just realized we're, we're getting starting to get a little bit late. Um, but a couple other questions before I, I, I let you go. Um, in your uh, bio, you, you stated that you take projects from strategy and conceptualization, information architecture and wireframing to high fidelity prototypes and user tested interfaces. So is this something that's unique to you? Or is this what the reality of an interactive designer's job is? Ooh, good question. I honestly do not know the answer. I just kind of landed where I am, and this has been my approach, and it's something that I'm still iterating on, actually. Um, but, I mean, I guess I can break it down when I think about, like, strategy and conceptualization. That's really, like, working with someone to come up with an idea of what this could be and where it could live. I'll use an example of a project, actually. So I worked on a digital art catalog for the Smithsonian's Freer Sackler, and it was an art catalog of Japanese illustrated woodblock prints. And I flew to D.C., and I looked at the collection in person, and I thought, you know, how can we represent this in a meaningful way online for scholars and researchers? So that was kind of the strategy and conceptualization process. I was working with the curators. I was working with scholars to understand why this was important and how we could put it online. 
And then from there, I get, started to gain an understanding of what is all of the information that you want to live on this site. So I knew that there would be long-form essays. There would be a collection uh, search and browse. And then they also wanted the ability for just like we're able to, and with a physical book, take notes and have bookmarks. They wanted to be able to do that online. So I knew that that would be part of, and all of that was kind of drawn out during the information architecture stage. And then I wireframed it to kind of put it in some sort of order and think about how how all of these sections might flow together. And then I began to give it a visual design, um, again, kind of taking from their existing color palette and riffing on that and their existing branding. And I made that into static mock-ups. Um, and then I began to user test that with their um, main audience so that it was both the casual user and researchers and scholars and I uh, conducted research both qualitative and quantitative and just really quantitative was looking at click patterns mm -hmm. and data and qualitative was sitting with someone and asking them questions and seeing uh, how they went through the interface yeah. um, so in well to me just like this is just a personal observation I I I don't know if this is unique to you or not, but I think this is why you've been successful because you do think of it, the design very holistically. You're not thinking it as one little, you know, like I said, just the one UI element, you see the big picture. And I think those people are, you know, rare, but yeah, that's well, just from you. my perspective. Um, so, but can you, oh, um, can you define a little bit um, or clarify what you mean by high fidelity prototypes? Yeah, of course. So really what I mean by that is just it's something that uh, before I would use things like um, Photoshop mm -hmm. and Fireworks and more recently I've been using mm -hmm. Sketch and um, just to go in and really try to mock up the interface as close to what it what I would like for it to be when I work with a front-end developer. So that's thinking about like this is the user state when you hover and this is what it is after you have had a form submission and you know, basically just thinking through the entire user experience and mocking up all states and then also um, all devices. So trying to mock up mobile and desktop. And so that's really what I mean okay. by high fidelity is just having something that's like as close to what the end product may look like and then um, working with a developer to ensure that they can create that with yeah. code. So, uh, you know, I this is a, a personal, also another realization is that I never really did the high fidelity prototypes like the mock up like like you talked about because for me that was spent that was it was I spent so much time doing that that I could um, I could probably design in the browser quicker and get yeah. a prototype that way um have you uh and I'm glad you mentioned sketch because I think also too the tools have radically changed um and yes. it's time for educators to kind of like reassess that too but have you I've um, been paying attention to uh, Adobe and specifically Project Comet. <laughs> yes. Um, I know that that's in an early phase. They're actually interested. They're working with some people um, at Airbnb to possibly test some of those early iterations of Comet, which I'm excited okay. to see. Um, and now, I mean, Sketch has a plugin now called Zeppelin for handing off a style sheet to a developer, which is fantastic. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it is preference with you and your, the front end developer that you work with. A lot of people prefer to do, you know, in browser with yeah. code. Well, I, 
it the preference aside for me it was just it's it's a matter of it was kind of almost quicker than doing a mock-up a high fidelity mock-up of a you know what it looks like on large medium and small formats absolutely i think that that's a very real so that's where it comes to is like ah which one can i do quicker so that's why i'm really interested in what's going to happen with comet because that to me is a game changer for at least education because that you know that i teach code for that exact reason because i feel it's like slightly quicker um so if if comet can like reduce that time that's spent i you know i think that whole dynamic changes in that um in that argument of should designers code so yeah i think i think that that's a very it's it's super interesting and i i'm actually trying to hone my skills a bit personally so all right rita well um before i let you go i'm just realizing what time it is is there anything you are working on that you would like to share or something you want to promote no, okay. no, okay. not really. Or maybe a final piece of advice you'd like to give design educators that we didn't cover. Um, I would just say stay curious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's the hard part. Yeah, that's, the, that's the hard part. Um, all right. Well, that's all we have time for today on episode 15 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Rita Troyer of Airbnb, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes Store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today. <laughs>